Well, this morning we continue our series in Proverbs that we've titled Wisdom in a Wikipedia World. And the specific theme that we want to talk about this morning is friendship. And this may seem at first to be kind of a cheesy topic, you know, something you might see at a checkout stand, you know, on a, on a magazine or something at the grocery store. But actually, friendship is one of the most written about and sung about topics in all of human history. And in fact, you'll see it two or three times during the sermon that you could actually sing this sermon. And those of you who dare to do so, you are just welcome to go ahead and uh, sing out. Because Cindy has told me I'm not allowed to sing in church, but uh, the rest of you can. Um, so it's actually a very important topic, not a, not a cheesy topic at all. Um, because friendship really has at the core of it both symptoms and causes of both human suffering and human joy. And so if you just sort of look at one thing, according to medical studies that I've seen, the more the good friendship somebody has, the better their health, lower the death rate. Friends, these studies tell us, help us ward off depression, boost our immune system, lower our cholesterol, increase our odds of surviving with coronary disease, and keep stress hormones in check. So there's a good reason to call a friend when you get home and just say, uh, how's it going? But I mean, those are actual medical studies, and that's just one little thing. We got a lot more to talk about this morning than than just that. I think what I want you to stop and think about with me this morning as I get into this, that God is actually mightily at work in both the richness and the challenges of our friendships. Um, this, I think, is our third Sunday here. Remember the first Sunday that we were here, we passed out again those little uh, spiritual formation things that we pass out occasionally. And I think what you're going to find this morning is that there is no greater soil in which one could work out their discipleship to Christ than in their human relationships. One of the big problems that's gone wrong is sort of a tactic or a strategy in the evangelical world for spiritual formation is that spiritual formation is too often something that one tries to tack onto an already over busy, over committed, over calendared, over indebted life. And when one tries to sort of tack it onto their life like that, you know, trying to get up at 4.30 in the morning to, you know, read a couple chapters in the Bible or do whatever, the, uh, do whatever it is that one does. I mean, in my long experience of being a pastor, I've found that those people often just become some of the most unkind people I've ever known. They're just grumpy because they're getting up at 4.30 in the morning. And, and it's, there's nothing wrong with the, the hour 4.30 in the morning well, other than it's the middle of the night. But other than that... Um, the problem with the strategy is, is that it makes spiritual formation something marginal to our actual life, and it leaves our actual life untouched. And I want to say that the basic fundamental strategy for spiritual formation is that it's your everyday ordinary life, as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. You're getting up, walking around, going to work, life that one wants to place before God as an offering. It's in your actual life that one has to find the goodness of God, and meet the challenges of life through the grace of God, not something that we tack onto our life. So there's nothing more fundamental, nothing more routine, nothing more right at the heart of our life than our friendships. Well, Mary found a good friend, found a friend named Sue. And Mary announced to Sue that she's going to start a diet and that she wanted to lose some pounds that she'd put on recently. Her friend Sue said to her, great, I'm ready to start a diet too. We can be dieting buddies and help each other out. So when I feel the urge to go out and get a burger and fries, I'll call you first. Wonderful, Mary said. I'll go with you. <laughs> so uh, actually, what, what are friends here? When, when we talk about friends according to the Proverbs, 
uh, we mean something more than just the basic sort of kindness, generosity, hospitality, friendliness that we're to show to everybody. In Proverbs, what we're talking about is somebody who's a close friend. There's just a few of these. People who, according to the Proverbs, the way they would look at it, who are outside of family, but we have frequent connections with them, a kind of close emotional bond, and some sort of strong mutual trust. That's what we're talking about this morning when we're talking about friends. Now, Philippians tells us that in the churches for always, there have been struggles with friendships. And this is why Paul asked them to agree together in the Lord. He says, as you're working out these friendships, let your gentleness be evident to all. So we can just stop right there. And let's just think for a minute. You you think with me. Is gentleness a pretty common personal trait today in human society? Do you find gentleness over parking spaces? Do you find gentleness over little spaces of asphalt on the 405? You know, just think about it. Uh, Almost everybody in the media these days, if you want to succeed on radio and TV today, it's almost axiomatic that one has to be bombastic and hugely opinionated and draw lines and divide and make things clear and discreet and separate. And to do that, one has to be very clear. And and the mode in which people are thought to be really clear today is to be really bold and and, uh, we might even say arrogant. But Paul says if one is going to find their way into friendships and 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 if one is to allow friendships to bring character to our own lives and he says let your gentleness be evident to all and whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable any of these excellent or praiseworthy things says paul says these are the things that you should talk about so what i want you to think about with me this morning is a question are today's challenges and difficulties with friendship Do you think they're due to our present economic struggles? Maybe. Everybody's a bit uptight. Uh, Do you think it has to do with the pace or complexity of life? Yeah, I I think probably something. But I think something more, and that is it has to do with basic qualities of beings. Jeremy Taylor, a 17th century priest and poet, said this, that friendship involves the greatest love, the greatest usefulness, the most open communication, the noblest of sufferings, the severest of truth, the heartiest counsel, and the greatest union of minds which brave men and women are capable. So, I mean, I'm willing to, sec- I'm willing to accept that as you are. It's just sort of a basic good definition of what we're talking about here when we're talking about friends. So let's now look at the Proverbs and see how these qualities of beings, because the thing that Jeremy Taylor is talking about here, these aren't mere moralisms. These aren't just sort of striving to do what's right against an otherwise contrary inner nature. These are the kinds of things for whom, if we're going to be good friends, these need to be sort of basic default positions within us. So three things that the the Proverbs teach us this morning about these kinds of good friends. Number one, they're not fair weather. Proverbs says that the friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. And this is now where you get to sing Bill Withers. Anybody remember? Lean on me, right? Remember that famous song? When you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. You just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. For we all need somebody to lean on. 
And of course, as I said, I mean, there's nothing that poets and musicians and, and prophets and writers of all kinds of literature, there's nothing that's actually been wrote about more than friendship. And so they're not fair weather. They don't isolate. I saw in the Wall Street Journal, I was coming through the airport the other day, and I saw a copy of, uh, somebody had a copy of the paper, and I picked it up and looked at it. And one of the headlines in the Wall Street Journal said, uh, in Chile, the lessons of isolation. And one of the things that the author was saying in this is it isn't necessary for people to be trapped thousands of feet underground for them to feel completely isolated from others. Ever walked into a room where you didn't know anybody and just felt completely isolated? Or ever had an opinion? Whether you're right or wrong doesn't matter. But ever had an opinion that was completely contrary to everybody else's and the isolation that one can find in that moment? Uh, I heard on Southern California Public Radio this week, again, talking about what was happening in Chile, that people who experience long periods of isolation undergo all kinds of psychological changes and symptoms. They have disturbed sleep and impaired cognitive ability, interpersonal tension and conflict. And I don't know if you heard, but when that whole rescue was going on and the weeks before leading up to it, um, NASA was a main consultant to everything that was happening there and helping those people survive in a space you know, a half a mile or more underground in a space that was maybe this big for whatever, how many days they were down there, I forget, 70 or something or 69, I forget. Well, NASA knows something about the challenge that it is to get human beings to tolerate isolation. It's not normally thought of as a good thing, but sometimes out of hurt or fear or the sense of being misunderstood, people choose it. But isolation, the Proverbs tells us, destroys relationships which are necessary to any sort of fruitful sort of functional human life remember the movie castaway with tom hanks remember the volleyball wilson remember he uh tom hanks like he's trying to build a fire i think and he he's rubbing sticks together or something and he slashes his hand remember that and he gets all mad and he starts throwing things that had washed up ashore in fedex boxes i remember you gotta remember castaways and so his hand is bleeding profusely he picks up the volleyball and throws it I remember the volleyball sort of ricochets, I think, back and, and sort of lands near him. And he looks and the handprint looks to him like a face with fire. I remember he takes his, his finger and he makes a little like happy face in it and names the volleyball Wilson. And then remember the rest of the movie interacts with Wilson. I mean, Wilson is a god. He's a friend. He's, he's a toy because isolation doesn't work. Well, secondly, the Proverbs tell us that really good friends don't gossip or slander. The Proverbs says it's the perverse who stir up dissension and gossip separate close friends. The Proverbs teach us that an unfriendly person against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Or the Proverbs says whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. I like the way Mother Teresa put it. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. I mean, your mind actually can only be on one thing at a time, unless you're a drummer like Joe. I think Joe can do more than one thing at a time. But for most of us normal people, our minds can only be on one thing at a time. And, and Teresa, I think, has it right. Uh, when one finds themselves constantly judging, there's little time to love. Or for some of you, I can guarantee this will be your favorite line in the sermon. I'll probably be hearing about it the rest of my life. There's an old proverb, a Chinese proverb that says, do not use a hatchet to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> an old Chinese proverb. I looked hard for this. 
Do not use a hatchet to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. And then third and last, the Proverbs teach us that uh, a good friend is consistent in self-sacrificial love. And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting at when he says two are better than one. When we hear that, we tend to think of marriage because we hear this a lot in marriage ceremonies. And that's fine. I think that application. But I think Ecclesiastes has something different here in mind, that this is something about for all humans who are lonely on this earth and are wondering how to survive in our dog eat dog world. For a good friend is someone who provides emotional and physical warmth. That's what I think this passage is teaching us. Emotional and physical warmth in a cold, cruel world. So when it says, again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? This is not just about keeping each other physically warm. It's about helping each other face circumstances beyond our control. It's about the need that we have to gain emotional strength and we don't have enough time excuse me, enough of our own in cold, hard times. So a consistent friend is the kind of person whom if you call them at two o'clock in the morning and tell them you need them, they don't ask what's the problem and then decide whether to come or not. They simply ask, where are you as they're getting dressed? That's a consistent friend. A British publication once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. The winning definition said, a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world is going out. That's what the Proverbs are trying to tell us when they talk about us being consistent in self-sacrificial love. You can sing again if you want John Lennon. I get by with a little help from my friends. Or maybe the greatest pop song ever written about friendship, Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. I'm on your side when times get tough and friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Maybe the best example of this in the Bible is the story from 1 Samuel of Jonathan and David. And I just want to say that we cannot go there until we can come to the place of desexualizing our friendships. And I don't know of anything in my career that has been more harmful to the church than the constant objectifying and sexualizing of every relationship that we possibly can. And if we're to get anywhere near the kind of love, the kind of I will lay me down, the kind of friendships, the kind of body life that the Old and New Testaments teach us, we have to find a way to realize that humanness is way more profound than gender. Did you catch that? Humanness is way more profound in meaning making than gender and or attachments of any kind. There's a very clear uh, rabbinic tradition, a Jewish interpretation around Jonathan and David that says this. I just want to read you a quick paragraph. This is the rabbinic view of what's happening with Jonathan and David. Whenever love depends on some selfish end, when the end passage away passes away, the love passes away. But if the friendship does not depend on some selfish end, it will never pass away. But when anyone who establishes the friendship for access to power, 
money, or sexual relations, when these ends are not attainable, the friendship ceases. But love that's not dependent on selfish ends is true love of the other person since there is no intended end. Now, you'll just have to trust me, those of us who are still getting to know each other, that this is not a political statement. I am not a political person. I'm actually very open-minded about what happens in terms of human rights and all that kind of stuff. But just listen to me. Christian, Jewish, even Islamic scholars, here especially is the Jewish and Islamic tradition. You ready for this? Marriage between a man and a woman is primordial. It's elemental to reality. It finds itself really, they, Christians would say in the Trinity, Islamic Jewish scholars would say something like this. We can no longer see redefining marriage than we can see removing the sun or the moon. It's primordial. It's just elemental to creation. Now, again, I'm not making a political statement. I actually don't. I mean, I guess I have little opinions about that stuff. But I'm talking about something that far transcends politics. That for as long as people have been thinking about God and how he intends creation, this has been seen as primordial. And one cannot have the kind of friendship that David and Jonathan had, who were married and had kids and were living in a Jewish story. And still somehow managed to have the deepest, most profound, desexualized relationship that anybody has ever known in human history. They swore friendship to each other. In the name of the Lord. They didn't swear friendship to each other for what they could get from each other bodily or money or any other way. They swore friendship to each other in the Lord. They said to each other, God will be the bond between me and you and between my children and your children forever. And even at Jonathan's death, you know the story that David, to keep his promise and to show kindness to his friend, took in Mephibosheth and made him his own family and took care of him forever because they'd given themselves to each other in the Lord. Well, the gospel reading this morning teaches us that for those of us for whom these kinds of friendships are rare and for those of us who would just say that I'm challenged to even be that kind of friend, we have Jesus who says, I'm inviting you into a reality that can transform your friendships and your capacity to be a friend. And this is my command that you love each other. Now, we've talked about this before, but it It begs saying again, because there's maybe no greater confusion in the area of just sort of common human life these days than the difference between desire and love. Love in our culture now almost always means mere desire. So, for instance, I say I love German chocolate cake. And the more icing and caramel and coconut, whatever that is, butter, Um, the more, the better. I love German chocolate cake. Well, what do I mean by that sentence? I do not mean that I will it's good. I do not will that cake's good. I intend to consume that cake. I desire that cake. That's what I mean when I say I love it. And that's the primary definition of love today. And it's why friendships are so difficult. And it's why they almost always get sexualized or monetized. If you were to take away all the friendships today that aren't somehow sexualized or monetized, you would find very few actually 
good friends, the way Proverbs is talking. But Jesus says, here is the path to that, to love. Agape means to will the good of the object love. Love each other as I have loved you. And how did I love you? I called you my friends. I invited you into my life. I invited you into what me and my father are doing. When he says, I've given you my commands, that's what he means. He just means I've, I've invited you into this story, this thing that, that my dad and I are doing together. I've spelled it out to you and I've invited you into it. Saying, I'll be your friend when all else fails. And saying that his commands are the route to being a really great friend. For agape love, love that wills the good of the object loved, by definition, rejects and sets aside the need to find something in it for me. And right there is the heart of both discipleship and some sort of missional engagement with the world. Because we will the good of ourselves. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So as we say in the front of the bulletin, we do this every week. Not because it's Anglican. Not even just because it's traditionally Christian. We do what we do. We engage in worship and hearing the word and the prayers of the people and creed and the prayer of confession. We do this for our own inner transformation so that we can be the kind of women, the kind of men for whom this kind of love becomes more natural and normative and kind of organic and the default position in our life rather than the kinds of things that harm friendship and harm our ability to be people for the sake of others. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.